Welcome to Future Horizons, the Tempest podcast. I'm your host, Sevi Watmo. Over the coming months, we will be publishing a series of conversations that aim to discover more about this landmark engineering programme led from the UK by the Team Tempest partners, UKMOD, BAE Systems, Leonardo, MBDA and Rolls-Royce. Over the series, we'll introduce you to many of those team members responsible for driving the programme forward, discover more about strategic importance to the UK's military capability, and find out how this technological innovation is inspiring the next generation of engineers. Today's podcast will have two parts. The first will explore Tempest as a technological driver for future security and prosperity, while the second will look at how we can engage the next generation of engineers and innovators, or Generation Tempest. We're going to start by taking a look back on what has been achieved so far on the Tempest programme, reviewing its journey to date, including a year of unprecedented challenges, followed by a wider exploration of its future direction and its technological and economic value to the UK aerospace industry and the nature's future prosperity. So to kick us off for our first episode, we are delighted to be joined by Michael Christie, Director of Future Combat Air Systems, BAE Systems, uh, Andrew Howard, Director of Major Air Programs at Leonardo, and Defence Journalist, Analyst and Historian, Francis Tusa. So for those listeners who are not already familiar with Tempest or our industry, can you explain why this might be described as the most important technological engineering project that we'll see in a generation? Francis, if I could ask you that first. Well, although a lot of the attention has been naturally, you could say, upon a new fighter aircraft, bomber, let's use all those phrases. That's how the public would perceive it. It is a lot more than just a manned aircraft. Of course, that aircraft might also be unmanned. There will be, um, let's again use words which some people don't like, drones, UAVs, armed UAVs, UCAVs in the terminology. Um, Again, the the phrase system of systems is massively overused, um, but Tempest is not just one single thing. It is a whole host of new technologies. And so, whereas in the past with the Tornado program, dating back to the 1960s when it kicked off, then Typhoon, which uh, kicked off, I'd say, early, mid-1980s, you were pretty much always looking at just an aircraft. Everything else came subsequently. Weapons, you name it, sensors, extra sensors. Tempest is not that. It is a uh, radical use of technologies across the piece bringing multiply different capabilities uh, over what's gone before. Andrew, expanding on on that, can you describe the technologies that are being brought together in this programme? Thank you. I think first just to reflect on on what Francis said, I mean, the the difference between this aircraft system and what's gone before is is extraordinary. Um, This is the first time we've designed uh, an aircraft system like this in the era of mobile phones, in the eras of common laptop computing, Tornado and Tempest were still traditional drawing board activity. Um, so the quantum change in technology is extraordinary. Uh, and what we've now got today is, is as, as Francis indicated, um, a leap forward in, in the sensor capability, in the propulsion capability, and, and obviously we've all seen some of what's gone on in America and elsewhere. And so I think the, the, the scale of change that, that, that the Tempest represents as a concept overall that's gone before, and, and its recognition is likely to be in service for most of the century that we're now in, the 21st century, 
is, is an amazing change. Michael, just looking ahead, this program is set to run until, you know, for decades into the future. So to do a bit more scene setting, can you explain why it's going to be very important that people have a clear understanding of the program? Yeah, <clears throat> just building on what uh, Francis and Andrew have said, the, the complexity that Francis talked about is is made even worse by the fact that the, the, the military challenges are changing rapidly. So there's a significant, a rapid change in the threat. As a result, there's going to have to be a rapid change in that complex system that Francis described. So I think understanding that is is going to be different. It's, it's just like Francis said right at the outset, this isn't a single aircraft anymore. So the <clears throat> understanding how the, the system develops through time will be quite different as well. And I, I, I suspect that the, the rate of change is going to be something that we've never dealt with before. As a result, some of the, the things that are absolutely fundamental to the programme and, and to the development of the system are some modern things very much based on the IT and, uh, and the, the telephone, the, you know, the, the, the telecoms businesses, because that open architecture and that ability to rapidly change is going to be something that, that's going to be important for the rest of the, the life of the programme. And over the past year, a diversity of thought has actually been very important for the survival of many businesses. And Michael, just staying with you, um, as part of Team Tempest, can you describe the journey you've witnessed your teams go through in, in what has been an incredibly challenging year? And uh, what has happened at BAE over the past year to respond in an agile and responsive way? Yeah, well, it's it's been amazing in a way because I I, th I think I'll, I'll never forget March the twenty third of last year because it was a it was quite a bizarre day. Uh, I ended up being one of the last people in the office before everybody was sent home. But the the rapid reaction of uh, getting collaborative tools to work, uh, whether it's WebEx or Skype or Microsoft Teams. And that, that becoming uh, the, our new way of working together, it was a pretty rapid response. And, and as Team Tempest, not just BA Systems, but across the team, we, we reacted to that very quickly and didn't really miss a beat. We made some very complex deliverables last year to, to provide to the customer, and we didn't miss any of them across the team. And, and that's a massive testament to the, the folk that, that rallied around. Now, I've got, I'm probably slightly biased because my wife is in charge of IT for, for my part of the business. So I've, I've, seen, <laughs> I've seen the level of stress that the IT teams go through to, make, uh, to keep things operating. And she was, she was absolutely maxed out for months, but we all benefited from it in the end. But I think the other thing that I saw was it, it was a test of and a proof of the strength of the relationship across the team because there were certain things that would have been incredibly difficult if we hadn't put the, the effort into building a good team, that, whether that be inside Team Tempest or the work we did with our international partners. And, and still we were able to make the progress through last year that led to, in the end to the signing of a trilateral MOU between us, uh, the UK, Sweden and Italy. That wouldn't have been done without very, very strong collaboration. So in spite of everything last year, I think it was a really, really high-performing year. Andrew, did you see a similar type of story unfolding at Leonardo over the past year? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, in the reality of it is the industry is, 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 in many respects, very, very similar across the big companies. Um, very similar experience to Michael. We had a, a sharp intake of breath last year in March, thinking, crikey, this is serious. What happens next? But of course, in truth, what happened next was good IT was rolled out across the team. Um, it, it went relatively well. 
uh, confidence grew relatively quickly. And I think looking back at the end of last year, we were all very, very pleasantly surprised from a business perspective as how resilient the organization had proven to be, um, how, how well people had worked from home despite the restrictions and constraints people had got on, delivered, and contributed very, very well to the program. And you know, it, it was unprecedented in every sense. People were obviously personally affected in different ways by, by what was going on around us, and, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. But at its core, from a pure program perspective, the progress that was achieved throughout last year was a testament to the, the industry, to the people, to the IT infrastructure, and to the, the desire to make this happen. And, and, it, and it did well. Francis, as you observed everything unfold, um, what was it like from the outside looking in? Um, the current perception of Tempest is it was only launched in 2018 when it was actually launched in 2015. And, you know, it's something which is certainly missed across the channel by uh, the rival SCAF team. So um, it, it's a program that has so far gone from absolutely strength to strength. And uh, what Michael mentioned about the tri-national agreement, um, that was a absolutely crucial step. Um, and you've had people who have basically rubbished Tempest, say, ah, it's not serious, you know, the, it's only the Brits and the others aren't, aren't really involved. They've had to go back and reassess how they view it. So speaking about the nature of that change, there can be a lack of opportunities in the public arena to explain to the general public why defence spending is important and what it contributes to society. And this is particularly difficult at a time when people are worried about their jobs, they're worried about their health due to COVID-19, and there is a general focus on government spending. So can you explain why it's important that funding to high-tech programmes like Tempest continues, why it represents value for money, and what the wider implications are if it doesn't go ahead? So, Michael, if I hand that over to you just to get, get us started on that. Yeah, well, I think whenever... Uh questions about value for money in our sector are raised, I'll go back to a basic, that the reason that we do what we do is to defend the nation. So it is fundamentally an incredibly important reason that, we're, that we do what we do. I think in the, in the case of this programme, there's, there's, there's something also that's very, very important, and that's a, a phrase that's used a lot in the, uh, in the, in the Ministry of Defence, and it's freedom of action. The ability for uh, the UK to do what it needs to do to defend itself without having to lean on anyone else, to put it crudely. And that freedom of action really requires us to, to have the capability in the UK. And this programme is incredibly important in that regard because it's restoring and, and, and preserving that capability for us to act on our own. I think if you then sort of expand it beyond that, the combat air sector as a whole has had a long history of uh, bringing not just to that aspect of defence, but also uh, from a point of view, the economic benefit. The combat air sector has traditionally uh, contributed at 80% plus of the, the, the defence exports in the country. So it's, it, it brings in a significant amount of money every year, six, on average £6 billion a year it brings into the, the nation. So as well as the basics of defending the nation and giving the nation the ability to act on its own, it also brings in significant prosperity, which all of which are quite important in the environment we live in at the moment. Andrew, do you think the industry is connected to future British prosperity in the minds of the public yet, or is there work to be done in this area? I think there is work to be done, although I also think there's a, a recognition that the, the aerospace defence sector at a very basic level is a source of, of long-held sort of national pride for all the reasons Michael uh, has touched on. 
I think the reality of it is that the type of jobs we create and we need are, are absolutely key to the government's broader agenda. They're STEM jobs, they're jobs founded in science and mathematics. And if we want to be a, a free trading manufacturing nation, which seems to be very much the focus of today's government agenda, um, we, are, we are serving that need well on top of the things Michael mentioned around um, the defence need, the freedom of action piece. So I'm, I'm very confident that, that the project is in the national interest in, 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 a, in a very broad sense. Francis, you are somebody who is always analysing the financials around defence and they very much tell a story. How would you tell the story of this uh, huge programme to the public using financials to explain it to them? Well, the, the starting point is to actually really start explaining. And if I would have, for want of an expression, a criticism to date, is that Team Tempest and the whole programme is still sitting very much in the shadows. Uh, and if you were to, I, I suspect, have a public opinion poll, whatever you want to call it, the awareness of Tempest uh, and thus what it means to the country, the levelling up agenda, the rebalancing the economy, most people in this country would not have a clue. And if we expand on that a bit, Francis, can you describe just how you would lay out Tempest's future trajectory in terms of its contribution to British prosperity agenda, uh, global Britain, and how would you lay out that evidence? Because that is a challenge in itself. Looking at it on a British level, you first off start pointing out where the jobs are being created, where they're being maintained. Uh, again, this just requires a degree of openness saying, yeah, uh, we've given a subcontract for X in Y area. Um, I suppose the advantage about aerospace, but also defence aerospace, is a lot of the, subcontract, uh, the subcontractor base isn't, and I'm deliberately exaggerating, it's not in London. It's not in the southeast. It is actually uh, further north. It's Midlands and the northwest. As such, trying to get the rebalancing of the economy, so moving away from services, but also um, rebalancing the economy away from the south, it's a pretty easy win to say that My something like Tempest ticks pretty much every single box. Michael, just building on Francis's point, how would you... Uh describe BAE system's stance on its uh, contribution in this area? Well, yeah, as you say, building on what Francis has said, the, the, we've got a very strong story to tell here. We, 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 and whilst I accept what Francis has said, I think we, we, should, we could and should do more to get the message out there. Last October, we did a, a broadcast where it was, it was hot on the heels of a study we had done by uh, PwC to look at the economic benefits. And and, and, and this is, a, I would say, quite a conservative assessment at the moment, but you're talking about 20,000 jobs that this programme is going to create across the country and £25, £26 billion pounds worth of value that it's going to bring. And in that regional benefit, 80% of the value is outside London in the southeast. to build on Francis's point. It's, you know, there, there are uh, sig significant nodes, if you like. There's, there's the southwest around Filton and Bristol, and then there's the northwest around the, the BA sites of Wharton and Salisbury, but also uh, Rolls-Royce, MBDA, an, an awful lot of our supply chain are in the northwest. It, it's created a magnet for employment for many, many years that has gone without 
uh, without much publicity. And, and I, I sometimes wonder whether it's because we're in defence and we, we're, we hide it because it's sensitive and so on. I actually think we should bang our chest and beat the drum and get out there and tell everybody this is a fantastic industry and it's a fantastic employer and it adds a huge amount of value. So I, I do agree with Francis. We, we should do more on this. Andrew, uh, you know, I, I think that I agree with what you're saying, Michael, because I think the defence industry in general has a bit of a problem about pushing itself forward in a positive way, because historically there's been a level of reticence and it's been quite conservative in the way it's communicated about itself in the public arena. So how can we change that to adapt to changing times and to open up the industry a bit? Well, I think you know, the, the, the interesting point about this program, as, as, as Michael and Francis have said, is, is actually it's a, it's a changing um, threat environment that's defining a changing need for a, a different type of project. And I think that extends to this type of question as well. Um, the, the very old fashioned idea of, of war in simplistic terms is quite a different thing today. So what we're actually talking about is a range of threats um, that we weren't anticipating during the era of, of previous aircraft design activity. So as we bring our program forward <laughs> to reality, um, we're talking about things like cyber threats. We're talking about things where it's not black and white, where there's the grey area of, of dispute, of conflict, of war is the real thing. And I think that probably plays to the public consciousness in a very different way. You know, they want to feel secure and defended. They want to be in an industry. They want to feel that their society, that their state is creating an environment that is modernising and protecting against changing and evolving threat. And I think the timing of our programme, the nature of the programme, um, and all of the many benefits that have been articulated, the, the, the cross UK reach of all that we do, the, the significant presence in Scotland for getting into that UK footprint is, is all um, crucial to the narrative that says uh, a nationwide response to a changing threat in a changing time. And that changing time is really uh, characterised by a lot of contrast, a lot of stark contrast, because on the one hand, you've got uh, you know a skills base that's got to keep pace with advancing technology. But on the other, um, you've got a stark global economic environment created by the pandemic that's affecting families across the country. So the aspirational aspect that goes along with the aerospace industry could have a conflicting narrative to people's personal experience of daily life. So how do you think industry should approach this challenge to ensure that the morale and motivation of current and future generations of engineers are properly plugged into the massive potential of engineering on the world stage as a realistic prospect and, and that we really do have a chance to realise the government's vision of a global Britain. Francis, if I could ask you that first. Um, OK, the very simple one, just constantly get the message out there. Um, on a more local basis, and, you know, do actually know that MBDA and BA systems are doing this, um, you work with your local partners, be they um, sixth form colleges, schools, universities. If people know, oh, yeah, X, they went off um, after they graduated and they got this really good job. That is the type of self-perpetuating uh, news where once you've got it going, quite frankly, you hardly have to do any work because everyone else does the talking for you. Um, so it is just, and I hate using the word messaging, um, it is getting the message out there and making sure that everyone knows it. So at one level, it almost becomes second nature. Let's be, let's use a nasty word, it becomes blasé. Oh yeah, Tempest, yeah, they employ lots of people. Yeah, fine, <laughs> that's not news. But that's good. If people know it, you've won, you've won the battle. 
Andrew, how do you think we should be plugging into the next generation to make sure that they're not only aware, but energised by the prospects that we could be offering them? I think one of the things that's become clear in the last 12 months or so against the, the challenging backdrop we've all, we've all seen is that there's been a much greater appreciation by our young people um, of the relative security of the defence sector. The, the long-term nature of the projects um, becomes a sort of a comfort blanket. And I think if you look at Tempest in that context, it's, a, you know, I, it's, almost, it's not wrong to describe it as a beacon of hope. Um, it's, it's a project that has longevity, it has innovation, um, it, it's going to take us from um, a situation of, of difficulty that we're, we're currently facing to potentially being the backbone of our, of our Air Force's capability for many, many years. And for, for people embarking on their career, for people thinking about a career in aerospace and defence, the fact that these programmes are going to last for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and beyond is, is hugely energising and we think that's going to be an attractive message for people to hear. Michael, how is BAE approaching this this challenge, and you know how are you uh, connecting with young people, particularly you know given there's the challenge that we're really communicating remotely right now? Yeah, well, I mean, clearly we're slightly hindered by the the fact that we can't go out and do some of the things that we would normally do, like go to the Big Bang show and uh, attract people to uh, various air shows and things like that around the country but there's a, there's a lot of that we can do virtually and uh, Generation Tempest that you know, we put a, created that hashtag a couple of years ago and it, it, it attracted and continues to attract people and we are we're continuing to do what Francis talked about is uh, connecting with the schools and making sure that the messages are out there. I do think that some of this is self-perpetuating in a positive way though because the, the, the Tempest brand has definitely caught on and, and, I, and as somebody who's been in the uh, been in the industry for 37 years, this is my 37th year in the industry. The thing that attracted me as a sort of young teenager in Ayrshire, along with people like this guy called Norman Bone, who's I think a teenager in Ayrshire at the same time, we used to see Concorde flying past because it used to test at Presswick Airport. Things like that, those iconic images do make a difference and I think we've created an iconic image notwithstanding Francis's point about it's not just an aircraft it still is a it's a fantastic icon for people and it does trigger people to to do what both Andrew and Francis have said and it was interesting I, uh, I've sponsored the launch of the Tempest Early Careers Network and uh, helped them launch it on Friday morning <clears throat> and it just to to follow up on what Andrew said, the number of young people in their, their early 20s saying this is something that's, that's going to be there for 40 years, we are going to be a, a community that grows up together over that period, that, that was quite inspiring for me to hear that because I've, I've heard for a number of years, ah, oh, the new generation are different, they, they just want to hop around. That's not what I heard on Friday morning. This provides them with that kind of platform for a very long career, like, like I have. Fantastic, enjoyable career. And if people can see that, why wouldn't they want to go for it? And, and some of the future generation won't only be working for, you know, the primes, they'll be working in the supply chain that will support them. And do you think that, again, another opportunity uh, to publicise the benefits of this programme is to show the geographical spread across the SMEs across the UK? Um, Francis, what's your thinking on that? Uh, very much. Um with the current assumptions of this government that they want to rebalance the economy, both in terms of the type of work the, the country does and regionally, um, the the supply base is going to be absolutely vital. And it is 
actually quite easy to prove where the jobs are and where they're going. And once you start getting MPs uh, and the like going, oh, right, so my constituency, I didn't think we had anyone working in, you know, in aerospace defense. And you go, oh, yeah, you've got three companies and they're doing this, they're doing this, you know, um, suddenly interest grows and again it becomes self-perpetuating you will uh, people like michael will find, um, know will have been bombarded by mps going tell me more about what's going on um and after one saying oh god can we you know can we get them off our back but it's good once you have enough uh, mps especially saying yes this is important to my constituency for skills for education and for long-term jobs Again, it's self-perpetuating. Andrew, do you think that the the regional aspect um, of the contribution can actually make uh, it a more interesting story to tell because you have people offering different types of innovation that are perhaps at a lower level than the, the large programmes but are still contributing in a very important way? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we're, we're constantly surprised at how, how strong and vibrant the SME community are and how, how, despite the you know, relatively small geography of our, of our nations, it's a, it's a huge diversity of approach, of mindset, you know, whether that's based upon geographical conditioning, whether it's based upon education. You know, when we're reaching out to organisations across the UK, we see different ideas and different approaches coming forward. So I think, just to add what's been said by France, I, th I think we will see you know, an enormous diversity of organisations involved. I think we're, we're pleased to see, and, and I think this is linked to the sort of changing nature of the platform, that it, this is definitely more than the big defence companies working together. This is a community of, of our country's leading lights, our, our best thinkers and innovators coming together to try and drive um, a freshness of mindset. And it's, it's bringing a lot of diversity. And I think you know, we're really energised by that. Michael, why does the SME offer a real uh, contribution in terms of its agility and its ability to do fast-track prototyping and, and, you know, contribute a freshness of perspective? Well, just for that reason, really, they do bring different perspectives and uh, it's always good for us to make sure that we don't get sort of trapped in our big... We are big companies and big companies t tend to have a particular way of operating. It's always good to get a, a view of somebody else. I think that I mentioned right at the beginning about the rate of change. The, the idea that somehow we have got the solution today that's going to be the solution in 20, 30, 40 years' time is, is pretty ludicrous. So I think the SMEs also uh, provide us with a level of flexibility of, of solution space as well. The, there's, a, there's a massive misconception that uh, we keep all the work to ourselves in the big industries. It, it's, it's not true invariably. And, and it's the same actually for most of the first few tiers of the organisation. Uh, few tiers of the structure we invariably buy about 60 percent of what we make and that that's the same for all of i think nearly all of the partners are roughly the same so those those smes bring innovation they bring challenge there's as, as andrew said they bring diversity which and whether that's diversity of thought or diversity of technology either way that's very valuable to us especially when things are changing so rapidly so we always we've always tried to embrace them i think it becomes even more uh, important in this program just because of the the breadth and the complexity of it. Ending on a slightly lighter note now, the premiere of the Top Gun sequel, Top Gun Maverick, starring Tom Cruise, has been pushed to summer this year due to the pandemic. And if you imagined you had the opportunity to walk today's Maverick around the future system, which we envisage Tempest becoming, what are the main attributes you'd like to point out to him in terms of capability? And what do you think his reaction would be? Francis, I offer you this invitation to imagine you're walking with Maverick around Tempest. Well, 
we are going to see just because you know computing power processing software have changed so many differences degrees of automation automation which i know michael's uh, uh touched on the fact that with tempest the the talk about the digital cockpit where you do not have all these displays there's almost nothing it's all coming into a helmet mounted display um the degree to which and i know curists would hate this the pilot isn't really flying the aircraft like he or she I have to say that because that's the other difference. He and she will be flying this aircraft uh, and managing the system. Um, it's going to be requiring a totally new different set of skills. So um, I suspect Maverick would be going, you can do what <laughs> would be the, the key reaction because compared to showboating with those MiGs, um, Maverick and uh, Goose will be able to be doing a lot more. And actually, I think that's an interesting point that Michael made earlier about the fact that Typhoon produces more data than a single pilot can um, take care of. Even with AI, here's the question, Michael. Is the role of a rear seater coming back into fashion? It's the second time I've been asked that question in the last couple of weeks, actually. I don't believe so. I think, I think that's, that other seat is going to be taken by uh, a piece of artificial intelligence, or other, you know, very intelligent, but not necessarily requiring another person. I think the general trend is keep people out of harm's way. So the idea that we're going to put more people back in cockpits, I don't think is going to be uh, the trend going forward. I'm sure we could have a very long debate about that, Francis. Andrew, what would you be seeing to Maverick? Well, I think, you know, Francis has touched on many of the points. I mean, the reality of it is that, that we've been showing them um, what an amazing advancement um, Tempest represents overall that they've seen before. I've obviously been pointing out the uh, unique power of the radar and the, the, the sensor array that's going to have huge amounts of range and capability. And I, I would be pointing out that the computer is going to be an awful lot brighter than they are. I mean, I think the reality of it is there'll still be some commonality in, in you know, at this stage, we anticipate having a manned, you know, personed variant. We expect a variant that will be uh, able to do lots of things of, of a similar nature. And I think the film had the, the strap line about feeling the need for speed. And we still expect the Tempest will deliver on that as well. Well, thank you to all of you today for delivering such interesting insights into Tempest technology. Tempest is a once-in-a-generation opportunity to shape one of the UK's most exciting engineering programmes from the inside out. Most of those likely to be piloting and maintaining the system in 2040 and beyond won't even be in school yet, and those who will be responsible for the system's final design and transformative technology are probably only now taking their first steps into their burgeoning career. The next generation of engineers and innovators, or Generation Tempest, will therefore play an absolutely vital role in the development and delivery of the Tempest programme. As part of this year's National Apprenticeship Week, we sat down with just a few of the talented professionals and STEM ambassadors from Leonardo, BAE Systems and Rolls-Royce, who currently form part of Team Tempest, to ask them to share their thoughts on the programme and the importance of awakening a new generation to their potential as engineers. Christian Chu works at BAE Systems and is a member of their innovative engineering degree apprenticeship scheme, where he's focused on Tempest's exciting concept engineering. Physicist turned engineer Sophie Kaiser is system team's leader and STEM ambassador at Leonardo, as well as a member of the Women's Engineering Society. Rolls-Royce design engineer Raphael Bosk is also STEM ambassador for the company. And Aditi Vyakkarnam joins us from NBDA, where she works as principal systems engineer, STEM ambassador and committee member for the staff network, championing ethnic diversity within NBDA. 
So to begin, for the benefit of our listeners, some of whom may be students deciding on their future careers, can you share the moment you realised you wanted to work in engineering, starting with you, Christian? Right, yeah. Um, I think in our school there had been uh, always the assumption that most people would just go to uni, um, and I was just carrying on that track, really, um, you know, just sort of picking my one or two best subjects and going down that route. Um and then I think I realised at some point that uh, that I was spending pretty much all my free time, all my break and lunch times uh, in the workshops and in the IT suites, you know, um, fascinated by our, we just got some 3D printers and some CAD software and stuff like that. And I realised it was kind of stupid for me to be picking chemistry or something when I wasn't that interested in it. Um, and it just made sense to go and uh, follow that path down to engineering, really. Sophie, was it a similar informal introduction to engineering for you or did you realise you wanted to do it in a classroom setting? Um, No, not at all. So slightly controversially, I'll say that I didn't really choose engineering, to be honest. Um, I was very into physics at school and then I went on and did a physics degree at uni. And it wasn't really until I got to the end of my degree where I had to think, well, what am I actually going to do as a job now? Um, And that's where I found that actually physicists can be engineers as well um, and that's really how I got into engineering. Aditi, did you feel that engineering was something that was a genuine prospect for you or was it like Sophie uh, described something that you found yourself moving towards after you graduated? Um, So I think I was sort of strangely focused on engineering actually from quite a young age. Um, I think I was about 14 or 15 when I came back from a theme park and decided I wanted to work on things that were cool and fast, um, much to my parents' amusement. Um, And then at sixth form, I went on a residential course actually called Head Start, which was meant to give you a taste of engineering, uh, because obviously it's not something you normally learn at school. Um, And there we got to fly a helicopter simulator, uh, do lots of sort of more day-to-day engineering tasks. And uh, that's kind of where I decided it it was for me. I think that the physical aspect of engineering can be massively impressive and engaging. And Raphael, did you have any early um, awareness of what engineering can achieve? Yeah, I think that's very related to my case, actually, because I think for me, it was more about the curiosity about how the world works, about discovering um, nature and discovering physics and discovering how the universe uh, works. And uh, that really motivates me and and that's why I started engineering and it's curious because I think the more I learned about it the more I like it so I think it's also like I'm discovering every day that I like what I do I think when you are uh, choosing at 17 or 18 uh, you are very very young and you don't know enough and, and it's curious how the more you know about engineering the more you like it I would say. I think that's a really interesting point you've made Raphael because it's uh, STEM ambassadors uh, will often say that they really enjoy watching uh, young people go through that process of a, a type of awakening to engineering where the world suddenly becomes a lot more dynamic because they get an, an insight into the workings of the world through engineering. And I guess what, what would be quite interesting to understand is the most surprising thing about engineering that you've experienced in your daily life that you wouldn't have expected before starting in your roles. Raphael, staying with you on that. Yeah, I think uh, what what surprised me most is about how important is collaboration, I would say. 
So I think when I was in uni and when I was uh, a child, I expected that professor, well, I knew that professors uh, knew everything or almost everything about the topic. And I think when you go to the real world and you face uh, the challenges we face in engineering, you discover that this, uh, there are a lot of people who know a lot, but it's more about putting all that knowledge together and it's about uh, using the best of everyone to, to solve problems. And I think that's, that's a thing I discovered when I started in the company and, and something I didn't knew before exactly. Aditi, was it similar for you? Did you feel a new awareness of the human dimension of engineering? Was that a surprise? And what else surprised you about engineering? Um, yeah, so I think that's that's quite interesting. And I think it can vary a lot from how people are taught engineering. Ours was very group focused. Um, so I think I carried that enjoyment with me into my daily work um, and probably why I like systems engineering so much. Um, but I think when I was um, mulling this over, it's honestly, for me, the most surprising thing is actually how little we know. Um, and being okay with that ambiguity and then kind of experimenting as a collective and collaboratively, as we've said, I think for me, that was probably the most surprising thing was that, um, yeah, I think especially when I, I'm working in future systems, a lot of what we do is kind of experimenting with ideas um, so being okay with that and and feeling free to be creative in that space, I think, is is what's really surprised me the most. There are a lot of assumptions that we know so much more, I think, from the outside looking in. But I think part of the thing that makes engineering interesting is its exploratory nature. Would you agree with that, Sophie? And, and was that part of your awakening in engineering? Well, yeah, um, having been interested in physics, um, very similar to what Raphael was saying, actually. Um, discovering the world around me was the kind of interest that I had really um, and yeah I've taken that kind of like interest through into what I do now and I do a lot of applied research which is all about working with groups of people um, at universities um, and also in the kind of setting of Team Tempest as well we're working with people across different industries um, and figuring out how we can explore and discover these new technology areas. It's so interesting because engineering involves a lot of cross-fertilisation between academia and industry itself. Christian, were you aware of that before you got into engineering? Um, I think I'd been told that, um, but didn't really realise what that meant in reality. Um, but I think it's definitely uh, a nice surprise when you get in there Um and you realise that it really just is a melting pot of different ideas, different departments coming together. Um, and like like you said before, that we're sort of starting almost from a blank slate. Uh, so much to discover with all the different projects. You need to bring in new people. You need to contact different departments, different um, disciplines all the time. I think that the working environment is very dynamic at the moment and it will have to accommodate the future generation that we sometimes refer to as Generation Tempest who will be inevitably pass the baton of developing Tempest technology far into the future. Can you describe the types of tasks that you would envisage an engineer of the future might perform? Um, Aditi, what would you say? Um, yeah, so this is a really exciting one for me. I think um, as a systems engineer, I think this is our opportunity to kind of spread that um, mentality a little bit which is to not just um, think about problems in a very sort of specific uh, department specific way 
but actually to kind of expand that bubble so far out. You know, we're not just talking about, um, you know, in MBDA's case, a weapon on a platform. We're talking about a weapon on a platform that can communicate in so many different ways to so many different things and kind of just growing that um, sphere of how we consider the problem space. Um, I think so having people that can sort of think in that way in these sort of big problem space ways, I think is going to be really important. Raphael, uh, how do you see that kind of big thinking playing into the formation of future rules? Yeah, uh, I think that's very, very important because I think in the future we will be able to automatize more more problems and to solve things quicker, uh, quickly. Sorry, But uh, I think the difference is uh, that we are uh, still able to make uh, intelligent decisions and th- that we are able to understand uh, Large, larger and larger problems, like uh, Aditi said, it's this is not about uh, an isolated problem. It's about connecting different pieces of of the puzzle, and I think that's that's the key for the future. It's about making intelligent decisions, being able to uh, have a robust thinking. I would say, so yeah, I think that will be the future. I think you're spot on uh, because you hear more and more about integrated systems and systems thinking. And um, Chris, what what do you see coming up that might tie into that? Yeah, so I think um, I guess from a from a technical side, you know, going down from the systems level, you've got all the technologies that feed into that, um, which allow that to allow that to happen really. Um, so, you know, we've had a, since the last generation of aircraft, you know, we've had a massive, massive exponential increase in computing power, different manufacturing techniques, um, yeah, different types of communication, artificial intelligence, automation, all these kind of things, which I think are going to be involved in making that whole systems picture uh, sort of come to life. I think we've seen it in our sort of personal lives with our interconnectivity, you know, our mobile phones and uh, across the internet and uh, you know all of that sort of making our lives uh, you know making our lives more interconnected and improved in that way I think that's just going to be the next step in in engineering. Sophie do you think there's a way of getting the current generation interested in a sort of systems role and how do you feel systems roles will develop in the future? So um the systems, I think in the future, the systems roles will essentially be doing the same sorts of processes. So we'll be going through and through the design process. But um, as um, everyone else has already said, because we've got so much more access to more computing power and technology, we'll be able to carry out those tasks in different ways. So um, we can very quickly now go through um, design iteration loops um, using model-based systems engineering. Um, so really what that involves, will the future engineers will be uh, writing um, code essentially to um, simulate what the final system will be um, and then to, to try basically to very quickly try out new designs without having to actually build something physical. Um, so I think it will be a lot of computer work um, and it could actually augmented reality and other technologies could play into that as well. Um, which is pretty exciting. I think that's a really interesting point. And how can we make sure that we're increasing diversity by making sure that people from different backgrounds 
are getting equal access to STEM education because, of course, there are some schools that have enormous STEM programs, but others that um, don't often have the budgets to participate in the same way. Staying with you, Sophie, on that. Yeah, um, so I think, um, so for Leonardo specifically, we do have our STEM ambassador kind of like outreach program, as do many other engineering companies as well. Um, one of the things that we do look at uh, as as an indication of um, opportunity is um, you know a uh, number of students receiving free school meals at that school. Um, so with that, we can try and focus our efforts um, like with those sorts of schools as well as um, those who might um, be less disadvantaged. And Chris, how do we break those barriers down and keep everyone feeling that they are part of the engineering, uh, the group of people who could pursue careers in engineering in the future? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a tough one. Um, I think what I've seen is that people respond very well to um yeah, the, the marketing of it, really. So women who see other women in, in engineering uh, in various articles or, or pieces, um, it generally does have a really big impact and inspire them um, to think that it's, it's the career for them. I think if we continue that up for all the various different um, groups or, uh, you know, so that we've got our, our diversity sort of um, picture, I think that that has a really big impact at, from a young age and right the way through to support people in their careers uh, that they you know that they've got access to continue climbing continue moving to different areas because um, they see other people doing it Aditi earlier on you were talking about the process you went through to find your voice is it also quite important to hear a diverse range of voices uh, from lots of different backgrounds in the public domain when you come to um, engaging with the engineering community? Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say a range of role models, I think, would be a really powerful thing for us to be able to to do across all of our companies. Um, I think it gets harder and harder to um, imagine and aspire to something if you can't see anyone that reflects you. Um, I think that's something that people are waking up to now. So, you know, when we are um, looking at advertising, and I don't I don't mean for companies to do it in a sort of a false way. Um, so, you know, to pick on the same people to, to represent them. But um, but yeah, to kind of think that through when we're recruiting, when we're advertising, um, and also when we're going into schools and into um, places of education to try and give a more representative view of what engineering might be in the future, I think could be, could be really powerful. Raphael, building on what Aditi said, why is that sense of authenticity important in terms of making people feel comfortable uh, uh, and included? Yeah, I think that point was really, really good. And I think role models are very important for this. I think you can't be what you can't imagine. And I think uh, having that, those role models, it's what we need really to tell the people you can be an engineer if you want, or you can be whatever you, you want in life. So, yeah, I, I really like that idea. And just finally, um, there are young people who might be listening who have gone through a turbulent year, a year with a lot of change, and they may be unsure as to whether they could be engineers. Are there any words of encouragement you'd like to leave them with, starting with you, Aditi? Yeah, I'd say it's been an incredibly challenging year, but I think it's also shown us the capacity for what humans can do when we're in really tough times. 
um, you know, we've managed to get a vaccine to millions of people in amazingly short order. You know, that takes real resilience and aspiration and creativity. And I would just say, just please keep aspiring um, because we really can achieve things. Um, so, yeah, go for your dreams and, you know, reach out. We're in a virtual world now. You don't just have to be confined to the resources that you would normally have. You know, there's so many different forums on the Internet, um, so many different things through LinkedIn. The The world is kind of even more our oyster in some ways because of because of what we now have virtually. Raphael, what message would you like to leave with young people? I think that that message about being brave, about uh being both it's the most important thing to remember we all have been there have been there we all have that uh, questions and I think by being brave and by facing that important decisions we will uh, you can achieve whatever you want and I think that's something that we all have to remember and we all have to be optimistic about the future. Hey, Chris what would you say to young people right now? Yeah I think certainly the last year has shown us um that you you know the path isn't going to be straightforward really um you're always going to get challenges but i think you know i think challenges and overcoming those are, are part of the course really for this for this industry um and i think overcoming them is uh is probably what makes it worth pursuing really absolutely and sophie um what message would you like to leave people today yeah so i think um if you have a if you have an interest or a passion um, just follow it. Don't worry if people are telling you that it's not for you or anything like that. Um, if you can get access to the internet, then um, try and research some stuff. Um, there's loads of uh, videos for STEM challenges online, um, small things that you can try out. Or if you don't have access to the internet, just sort of like try and create things at home with what you have. Aditi, Raphael, Chris and Sophie, thank you very much for your uh, great input today and your great ideas. Thank you. Thank you. Join us again for the next episode of Future Horizons, the Tempest podcast.